For this episode of Engineering Matters, I think we had better first cue the music. Because this week, timing, coordination, and trust are everything. As we look at a project that required multiple types of machinery to operate in concert, balanced at a precarious angle, just so they could do the job. A site that was blasted with wind, rain, and sand, such that it could be simultaneously wet while being swept with wind-dried sand that could form dunes. Materials supplied from manufacturing sites overseas, timed so they would arrive at the perfect temperature. Any schedule slip, and the truck would become waste. It required ingenious design modifications to fit all of this in a tight footprint and not impact on the outside environment. So much careful choreography was needed that the team on site described it as a ballet. But its purpose is far from the world of dainty satin shoes. It is a racetrack. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we have partnered with Shell to look at the Circuit Zandvoort, the iconic post-World War II racetrack in the Netherlands. Beloved by fans of all flavours of motorsport, it recently had cause to redesign and resurface its track in the hopes of hosting the first Dutch Grand Prix since 1985. To do this required the design of some of the steepest banked corners in the world, the construction of which pushed the supply chain and the equipment to the limits. We will learn that although a racetrack may look like an ordinary road at first glance, in reality its capabilities are far beyond what we are familiar with on our daily commute. And every track is completely unique, with differing aggregates, polymers and additives going into every asphalt mix. But first we should know a bit more about Zandvoort itself, which is situated among the sand dunes that it is named for. For that, there is only one man to speak to. My name is Nick Oudelutekhuis, and I'm responsible for all the construction works on the circuit and all the maintenance works on the circuit. The circuit of Zandvoort is known as one of the circuits that's built after the war and it's one of the what they call the old school racing tracks that still exist as an old school racing track. It looks like most of the circuits you will find in England. Still a lot of gravel runoffs, yeah, well, how you call it, cozy. The course runs for 4.2 kilometers and has 14 turns. Not a real huge circuit as you've been, well, what you've been seeing in Shanghai or other Formula One circuits where you, uh, with all the new circuits where they have the room to expand as much as they want to. All the facilities are huge. Now these facilities are still, what people need is there, but what makes it extra special is it's one of the few tracks, I think maybe the only track in the world, that goes through the dunes. And that makes it very special and beautiful. Beautiful, but constrained by housing and the natural environment surrounding the course. But for Nick, this isn't a problem to fret about. It only adds to the fun. Everything in Holland, it's constrained. 
So <laughs> we have solutions for everything. Uh, it makes it extra special because there is no common solution for uh, the problems we have. And we have to think uh, outside the box. This outside the box thinking was truly to be put to the test in 2019 when Zandvoort sought to bring the Dutch Grand Prix back to this beloved undulating track nestled among the windswept dunes. Well, the challenge we had was that, first of all, uh, Formula One management uh, was looking at the racetrack if it was possible to get the Formula One driven around here. And one of the biggest issues we had with them was the straight. All uh, modern Formula One cars uh, have the DRS system to overtake. DRS, or drag reduction system. This is a driver-operated adjustable bodywork flap located on the rear wing of the car that can be opened up to reduce the drag and give the car a speed boost at the expense of downforce, which allows them to corner better. It requires a long straight section of the course to be safely opened. And we don't have that. We have environmental issues on both sides of the circuit and therefore we couldn't lengthen or change the circuit as a layout. Well, that was the biggest issue for us. And we had the solution for that is to make uh, turn 14, the last corner. We uh, made special, we made several layouts with uh, FOM. Formula One management, FOM. To look if we could make the different layout on, on site. And so the DRS could be opened uh, before the corner of in the corner. Right? And then uh, use it as a longer straight. So the DRS could already open in the corner. But the G-forces with the system open, what a Formula 1 car can have, is the maximum of 2.5 Gs. And with all the testing we did, uh, virtual testing we did, on the different layouts we proposed to them, uh, we saw that they were, were always going over this 2.5 Gs. So there was uh, yeah, a great difficulty, so we couldn't uh, do it with a different layout. Then we came up with the idea to bank the corner. So with a corner on a sharp enough gradient, the G-force would no longer be purely horizontal, but would be directed partially into the ground. And the cars would be able to open up the DRS, giving the spectators the chance of seeing a dazzling overtake at speed. It was something that had never been attempted for an F1 track before. But if they pulled it off, it would make Zandvoort a jewel of an international racing circuit and they worked out that it would take a gradient of 34 to 35%, while the guidelines of the FIA, or Fédération Internationale de l'Automobile, apologies to any French listeners, suggest never exceeding 10%. And this is before the physical challenges of laying a road at that angle. They wanted to accomplish this with standard equipment that was not designed to be used on a slope. Gravity was not our friend at that moment. So they approached a company that had experience redesigning another particularly exciting racetrack, Silverstone in the UK. The company was Studio Dromo of Italy. We spoke to founder Giano Zaffelli. Dromo in Latin is uh, a pillar, uh, a place of reference, okay? But the fact is that also is a word that means a place where you can race a place where you can do some racing in it. Think Velodrome, Hippodrome, Aerodrome. So 
the company born in 2000, basically. I started wanting to build a, a racetrack in my hometown and I discovered that uh, there were no manual on how to do it. Uh, there was no uh, how to build a racetrack for dummies, you know. And so the only way I knew to proceed was just to move on uh, the several racetracks that were built at the time, trying to understand their history, why they were built like that, how was the process and so on. So I spent basically seven, six, seven years, 2000 to 2006, 2007, following Formula One, following MotoGP. And Jano says the difference between designing and building a racetrack and designing and building a normal road is much like the difference between the cars that use them. Is exactly the same difference that there is between an SUV and a Formula One car. The fact is that, think about it, the SUV is heavy, is bulky, and is not applying shear forces rather than when he's braking or when he's doing a roundabout. And uh, the main thing on a uh, road package is to sustain the load. Then the wearing course, okay, need to have some requirement of grip because we need to reduce the accident. So you need to have a certain low slippery level. But on a racing, you can change everything. You don't have to sustain these huge vertical loads because the cars are not that heavy. They are not heavy, but their incredible speed and subsequent braking exert massive pressures on the road surface. The problem is with the shearing forces, because when they brake, when they accelerate, when they turn, especially if they have aerodynamic, like Formula One cars, uh, the, the loads are huge. The second point that is very important in difference is that uh, the polishing of a racetrack is very high and always in the groove, in the racing line. While in, on, on, a, on a regular road, the polishing uh, uh, is much, much, much less because you don't have the tires that are slick, that are just so abrasive, so adhesive to the surface. So uh, a track can last uh, much less on the grip level, but a road can definitely last much more on the deformation, let's say, because it's done for different reasons. And you might be forgiven for thinking that if we can do an airport runway, a racetrack must be easy. But it's totally different. Because on a racetrack, you need to fulfill a flatness of three millimeter on a four meter straight edge. On a road, you can stay within 15 millimeters. On an airport runway, you can stay 20, 30, 40. Because the most important thing is that the place where the planes are just landing, or they are touching down, is stiff enough to rebound and, and absorb without the formation, permanent deformation, the load of the airplane. But after that, is is easy. So these are three separate worlds that seem similar to the layperson, but are in fact very different. That's why testing something particular like the bitumen on purpose is key because also the temperature, think about it. When uh, you have a plane that is landing, the tire is completely cold and is, uh, and is basically not uh, rotating. So when it's just going uh, and doing a touchdown, 
the acceleration of this tire is instantaneous and is dramatic from 0 to 300 kph in some seconds. If you think at the Formula One car, you have a heated tire 120 degrees that is going to stay and touch the bitumen and the aggregate and trying to pluck away every gravel stone aggregate piece of aggregate that they can find because this is what is giving it the grip on a, on a regular road neither of the two you don't have temperature you don't you have minimal loads uh, you don't have this kind of shear forces the key to getting this performance from the road Jarno says is the bitumen the part of the asphalt that binds the aggregates together something he has learned on racetracks all over the world, and the learning process never stops. So far, never stop. And we are doing uh, tracks in this moment for Formula One and MotoGP, but uh, last year mainly for Formula One, where we, well, we put higher and higher the level of what we had to do. For example, starting from Silverstone, it was a real challenge for a lot of reasons we said, okay, we will never do something complicated as Silverstone. But then came Zandvoort. But Zandvoort was on a sand, was between dunes, was, and it is actually now uh, on the seashore. In the winter, that is a mix of the worst thing that you can imagine between the, the British winter and the Dutch winter. So you can have freeze, you can have snow, you can have, well, you, sh you surely have rain and wind, 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 a lot of wind. And sand blowing everywhere because as soon as you start the, the work site, you have sand everywhere. It's not, it's not enough to, to, to have it wet because the problem is that the, the wind dries the sand on the surface and then the sand is just blowing everywhere. So not, not content of this, so we had also water coming from the bottom because the sea level, you know, is very high. A fact known to every construction project ever undertaken in the Netherlands. Jarno says that many people assume that a track designer draws a circuit on a blank sheet of paper. But in reality, he has a diverse team made up of geologists, engineers, architects, professionals of every field. Because if you think at something, but then you are not able to engineer it, to make it possible, is simply not possible. And here comes the main challenge. So the challenge we got is that the, the concept from Zandvoort was quite demanding because they came up with this idea of using bankings. We were working with banking since 10 years uh, ago but we never got uh, uh, the opportunity to have a banking built in a proper Formula One race truck. The idea came out from the truck manager and the truck manager basically tried to fill a gap in the, the truck layout. They had a problem actually with, uh, with the straight, it was too short. And so there was uh, not the chance to make it longer. So. When FIA went to Zandvoort, they would like to have a long stretch. The problem is that to, to aid for overtaking. The fact is that the long stretch was not possible to get it because the truck was confined between natural protected area. Problem is that FIA at the time was asking for 10% maximum of lateral inclination. 
Not only. The reason why they're asking 10% of inclination is mainly because on a construction perspective, you cannot build something with regular machine more than 8-10% of lateral inclination. So let's say that in general terms, it was difficult to build something else that was not at that limit or was beyond that limit. And officially from the regulation was not, uh, let's say, recommended. But Nick and other stakeholders agreed that this was feasible and that Yano had their trust. Meetings with F1 and with tyre manufacturer Pirelli were set up, simulations were done and... We got some confirmation. So to have the DRS open, we need minimum 15 degrees. Uh, 15 degrees, not percent, is more. 10% is 5.7 degrees. So if we have three times 15 degrees, we have the DRS open. If we are going uh, uh, with 15 degrees, at least we can have the tires working. Okay, let's go. Then the designer have to work with the contractor. Is the contractor able to build something like that? Is the mixed design able to be stable at 15 degrees? What if we're going steeper than 15 degrees? Because actually we went up to 19 degrees. They knew that for an asphalt racetrack, the very steepest inclination in existence was at the Daytona Speedway in Florida. It's 32 degrees in Daytona, and uh, at 30 degrees is the really maximum. But to have also 19 degrees as we did, that is roughly 34-35% of inclination instead of the maximum 10% that the guidelines were saying before, we had to do something with the contractor and on the mix. And because of that, we said as circuit designer, okay, the truck is beautiful, but we can improve it. We have special machines, we have special skills, we have a tight, uh, a tight time frame and a mix that will be designed for the last corner. Why not, why not doing some other corners like that? So that's where and when it born the idea of the Huguenot's corner. The Hugenholtz corner is turn number three, which also needed to be moved for the new circuit layout. The corner is named after John Hugenholtz, a legendary Dutch racetrack designer who sadly passed away in 1995. He is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, track designer of all time. And a hero to Jarno, who went on something of a pilgrimage to meet his son and racing driver Hans Hugenholtz. He was quite sceptical because, you know, in time by time, uh, many circuit designers approached him to understand what was the philosophy of the father and so on. And he was always quite sceptical on this. But we were good enough to explain the concept and he was enthusiast on that concept. And he, he couldn't believe that we, we were going to do something like that. But in the end, we did it. And we did it because we were good enough uh, to work with the Dutch, understanding which were the right guys to uh, think about. Uh, one case, of course, was uh, the selection of the, uh, of the contractor, but then also the selection of the material. The only way to be sure that the mix uh, works is testing testing, testing and testing, selecting. We passed uh, almost three months to select the material, to understand uh, which was the right bitumen to be used. 
also because uh, the conditions were the worst possible for laying a mix like that. Time, constraint of temperature, and knowing that uh, the truck should be ready by the 28th of February, and having races since the day after, having an inclination that basically was not done before in these kind of corners. A lot of testing, trial, errors, and trying to learn. Jarno says this experience needs to be collective, shared by everyone. For example, the first trial that we did with the contractor, the contractor was saying, no, impossible, we cannot do it. The second trial, okay, we can do it maybe. Third trial, yes, okay, we can do it, but we have this issue. We were ready to build that truck the day after we finished. That is, the day after they finished building the track. Learning continued throughout, from building test corners in the circuit car park, to supporting the machinery with tethers to stop them tipping over on the turns. The tests were endless. I cannot count it, there were many. But uh, what was important was the work in the lab. So all the material were tested in our labs and tested against each other to try to understand also which was the better compatibility, chemical compatibility between the, the materials that we had, different kind of bitumen, different kind of aggregate, different blending, different mixes, and testing a different temperature. Because in the end, you have to think that when you are designing a surfacing for a racetrack, you have a lot of things to consider. Let's say that we have a mix because we are doing a street circuit. A street circuit is one that is just used for Formula One and the surface can be optimized for Formula One. Then you can push the mix to be extreme and perfectly suitable for the Pirelli tires that are the Formula One in this moment. But if you have a track like Zandvoort, you don't have only Formula One. You earn your days, day by day, renting the track. So if I do uh, an asphalt that is perfect for the slicks of Formula One, is not necessarily very good, for example, in the wet. But in Zandvoort, I have wet. I have uh, uh, rain, I have wind, I have sand. So the balance comes out from experience from one side, but also from testing, 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 and trying to uh, set a target and go for this target doing the most testing possible. But in the end, you need to build it. So we can do the testing in the lab, but then we have to go in the batching plant. We need to be able to transport the material on the site in a certain time, at certain temperatures. So it can be compacted properly. The asphalt needs to be workable and transportable, but also needs to meet the complex requirements of the surface. Remember earlier when Jarno was describing the racetrack as being like an F1 car compared to the SUV that was like the normal road? And in meeting these requirements, the bitumen is key. So if Jarno considers himself as a director of this ballet of the construction site, let's meet one of the dancers. A, a road is indeed um... It's, it's made of bitumen, but it's not only bitumen. This is Jean-Nicolas Depré from Shell. He's describing an asphalt road, which people often confuse with bitumen. But bitumen is only one part of the asphalt. A road is a mixture of aggregates, sands and bitumen. 
uh, idea is that the bitumen will act as a binder for the different elements in order to, to make it agglomerate all together. And the bitumen will also bring, thanks to its elastic properties, it will, the viscoelastic properties, it will bring a certain resistance to deformation and to come back in position, which will help the road to be able to withstand loads, to deform and to also come back in position without fracturing or breaking, like what can happen with a stiffer material. The most important aspect for the racetrack is to have a good grip. You want to ensure that in fact your car can take a corner at high speed. So grip is really one of the key elements of a racetrack. Now, if you talk about grip, what will happen is that you will have also a lot of shear force applied on your road. So having grip needs also to ensure that you've got a very good cohesion of all your aggregates together and that this shear force will not uh, take away some of the aggregates, some of the uh, elements of your road away and, will, uh, and let's say that you will have stones chipping away from your, from, from your road surface, from your, from your track surface. So the grip is mainly related to the type of aggregates that you will use, the size of the aggregates and the characteristics of the aggregates. The shear force resistance will be mainly brought by your bitumen, by your binder, which will ensure that it will be cohesive enough to maintain all these aggregates together. Bitumen is coming from uh, crude oil processing. So the first element that you, that, that you are using in order to produce bitumen is crude oil, which will go through a refinery and uh, you will get many distillation steps. At this point, it's called a base bitumen, or penetration-grade bitumen, and can be used for most applications. But a racetrack is not just any application. In order to improve the, the bitumen characteristics, improvement is required depending on the applications that you, that you want. But for example, for racetrack, where you want uh, high cohesion, you, you need to get this improvement. What you can do is modify the polymer by mixing them with some chemical compounds. And the most used kind of, pol of uh, modification is using polymer to modify the, the bitumen. This is called polymer modified bitumen, or PMB. And to do that, what you do is that you are mixing bitumen with polymers in order to have the polymer developing a network inside the, the, the bitumen. And this network will bring uh, some elasticity, improve elasticity to your bitumen. It will improve different kind of characteristics, uh, which are key for which, which are key for the bitumen. Uh, and mainly, in fact, it will also improve the thermal susceptibility of your bitumen, meaning the temperature it can withstand between the low temperature and the high temperature. So, if you take a base bitumen. It can withstand uh, a certain cold temperature and certain high temperature. So at cold temperature, if it goes too low in temperature, it will start to crack. If it goes too high in temperature, it will start to flow. In fact, it will uh, behave more or less like a liquid. By adding polymer, you are changing this range and it can withstand lower temperature before cracking and it can withstand higher temperature before starting to flow. And this is all about elastic recovery in the event of deformation. So if something recovers back to its original shape or position, it's elastic. If something is permanently deformed, more like a chewing gum, it's less elastic. The latter would be problematic for a racetrack. 
One of the main differences between a penetration grade and a polymer modified bitumen will be the elasticity of the two products. Uh, one test that we carry out is uh, elastic recovery. For this test, we take a sample of a given lens and we pull on it in order to deform it to a lens of about 200 mm. Once done, we cut it in two and after 30 minutes, we measure the length of the sample. While for a penetration grade, uh, you may even not be able to deform it up to 200 mm because it will break before. With a polymer modified bitumen, you will deform it to 200 mm and after 30 minutes, uh, it will have recovered almost its original length, meaning that you will get an elastic recovery close to 100%. What you should also realize is that with a polymer modified bitumen, you can deform it even much more and you can reach lengths of 400, 500, sometimes even 600 millimeters before it breaks. And this at temperature in the range of 5 to 10 degrees. Synthesizing the PMB is done in a specific unit at the production site. And uh, what you do is that you, you, you take your bitumen, hot bitumen, uh, you are mixing your bitumen with polymer. You may use some sulfur in order to do cross-linking and to improve uh, the compatibility between the polymer and the bitumen. Depending on the process, you may have a high shear mixing system in order really to break the polymer's um, uh, pellets in, uh, in a very, very fine particles. And once this mixing is done, then you will, you will have a maturation time. The maturation time, in fact, will be used to really uh, allow the polymer to develop a, a network inside the bitumen and to really connect to the different molecules in the, in the bitumen and to get a, a, a strong network which will improve drastically its, uh, its elasticity and the bitumen performance. But as well as getting the highest performance from the bitumen, we had another constraint on uh, this bitumen is that Zondvoort has been laid on during winter. So it has been uh, laid on in uh, February. And laying down uh, bitumen during cold, uh, cold weather is something which is very difficult. It, it, it's, it's more difficult because in fact you will have your, your asphalt mix which will start to cool down faster. And once the asphalt mix starts to cool down, it's the workability of the asphalt is not as easy as when you've got a hot asphalt mix. And they had to find a compromise between the requirements of DROMO in terms of resistance, which would increase the viscosity of the asphalt, and on the constraints of the applicator, which was KWS. KWS, the contractor. The idea was really to, to ensure that they can have a workable asphalt mixture that they can apply and they can compact in order really to get the void contents that Dromo was looking for. On every sophisticated road project, there is a dance between the contractor, designer, owner and supplier to make sure that the requirements of each are satisfied. Which means the mix is reformulated, tested, adjusted, reformulated, again and again. But Jean-Nicolas just mentioned another challenge the void content that Dromo was looking for. 
Yano was also defining characteristic for the asphalt mix. So meaning that, for example, the void content, so the percentage of void you've got inside your track was having a low value and a high value. And uh, you need to compact your asphalt until you reach this value, but you should not also compact it too much. And in order to make sure that you can compact properly your uh, asphalt mix, you need, in fact, to be indeed able to control the temperature at which you do it. You can also help the workability by using different types of additives, which will make the uh, asphalt more workable at lower temperature, but still want its cold, keeping its uh, interesting characteristic and its performance. If you are wondering what these additives and polymers are, you will unfortunately have to keep wondering. It's a bit of or intellectual property, so we, we, we don't want to disclose it too much. And finally, one last challenge for the road was getting the material to site at a workable temperature in the bleakest of winter weather. We've got several manufacturing plants, but in order to produce this very specific binder, the only one for really, which was really able to do it in a short period of time was the one we've got in UK, in Stanlow. Stanlow is a major refinery in the northwest of England, near Liverpool. But uh, UK to the Netherlands, it's a long way and there is a channel in between. And this was indeed a supply chain challenge. We had to make sure that the trucks will be able to load on time so that the product will have to be manufactured on time, to be loaded on time in the truck, that the truck will go to the ferry and will be able to reach the Netherlands and at the same time making sure that it will be on time. On time to the local asphalt mix plant, which Jean-Nicolas says is itself a fair distance from Zandvoort. When transporting this material, you need heated trucks going at a temperature of 170 degrees Celsius. Otherwise, you can lose more than 10 degrees per day. Coordination and timing are vital. On the construction site, you've got indeed a ballet because you need to get the um, uh, asphalt trucks coming over, up, uh, offloading into the finishers. Behind the finishers, you will get the compactors in order really to make sure that everything is, uh, is even. You need to get a continuous supply. But to be able to make this happening, you also need to get a continuous supply of bitumen. And, that's fr and, and getting this being done from UK to the Netherlands was indeed an additional challenge. So making sure that we produce on time, on quality, and that the product will be delivered at the right temperature in the site on time. Yeah, it was quite a, it was quite a challenge, but a lot of coordination uh, has been done by your operation team, and they've been able to really deliver all the product with no duty and all the product were perfectly on spec. And so, the dance continues. But the true proof of the circuit Zandvoort will be when it opens. And although local racing superstar Max Verstappen has tried Zandvoort out, only the 2021 calendar will prove it. But the track itself was completed on time and is a success. Here's Nick again. When we announced the project of going to rebuild the circuit, people didn't know from the bank corners and they thought we would only make more gravel, tarmac, tarmac, everywhere, replace the gravel banks, maybe even reduce some corners because in the FIA guidelines it says that you can't have bank corners, only a maximum of 6% or something. Some of our 
uh, current corners already were over these six percent. So everybody was, yeah, afraid we would ruin this circuit. But we did the opposite. There was a lot to live up to. Many fans of the course, which is known locally as some people call it the Dutch roller coaster, the racetrack. And now, yeah, it's, it's even more. <laughs> And although the racetrack may indeed be a Dutch roller coaster, the design and the construction work to make it so was more like ballet. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Script editing by Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own Lord of the Dance is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Shell Bitumen, Studio Dromo, and Zanvort. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, or share us on Twitter and LinkedIn.